Good evening, everyone. It is so good to be here. Uh, my name is Danny, if we've never had the chance to meet before. Um, to, uh, so we have been journeying over the last few months into the book of Colossians. Tonight, we are actually taking a, we're almost done with that series, but we're going to take a one-week pause on that to enter into a larger series that we have been doing over the last three years, which is entitled One Another. Now, where this comes from is in the book of Matthew. Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's talking to them about what the outside world should look at within the lives of those who claim to follow after Jesus and be able to know that they are genuinely his followers. And what Jesus says is telling and so difficult to process that it would would be easy to almost want to dismiss it and say, well, maybe Jesus doesn't really get it. Because what he says is that they will know that you are my followers by your love for one another. Our love for one another should be the defining point of how people outside of the family of God would look into the family of God and be able to see that we truly are followers of Jesus. Now, that word one another is the word in Greek, alelon. And alelon means interconnectedness, interdependence, to be truly connected, to not live in isolation, to not silo ourselves away from others, to not do life alone. It's, it's counter to the concept of, well, I'm going to do life my way and you're going to do life your way and then that'll just be good. We'll do our own thing. Love one another. Be interconnected in this love for one another. And truth be told, if we were, I would imagine for all of us, if we were to answer the question, what do you believe that the outside world looks on and sees as the defining markers of Christians, that love for one another probably isn't one of the top five. But yet love for one another is the way that Jesus said it would play out. Jesus said it, and since he is the one who died and rose again, he gets to call the shots, right? So he says that this is supposed to be our defining marker. So either Jesus is wrong, or we don't get the picture completely. Now, in the life of the early church, those who began to spread the good news of the gospel around the ancient world um, shortly after Jesus' departure into heaven, they began to receive letters by different apostles. And these letters were um, now comprised a decent amount of what we call the New Testament, the last portion of the Bible. And these letters that were written to these churches have a lot to do with what does it mean? What does it look like to, di- to, to display love for one another in their local context, in their community? So, we have been exploring a few of these one another's over the past few years, whenever there's a week or a few weeks that kind of allows itself to be towards the end. And if you ever want to check any of those messages out, um, you can always do that on our website or on our podcast or on the app. Um, they're all on there under the one another series. But tonight we're going to be entering into Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And tonight specifically, we're going to be in Romans 12. If you want to go ahead and open up your Bible, um, we have the beautiful blues. Uh, these Bibles are always available if you ever need one in the very back um, on my right, your left. Uh, and they are always available there if you need one just for the night or if you want to take one home and keep it as a gift. It's always there for you. If you are using a beautiful blue, I got a page number for you, 1049. Now, we are going to be hanging out in Romans 12. But before we get to that passage, let's chat for a second about music and music theory, a subject that I know very 
little about, okay? So I say that because it fits in with the message, all right? So this is an analogy. Now, if I get the analogy wrong, don't shout at me from the audience, all right? Like, wait till after, and you can correct me after. I'm not going to get the scriptures wrong, hopefully. Hopefully, the only thing I'd get wrong is music theory, again, in which I am not an expert. But I have talked to some people who know some stuff about music who don't have voices that sound like mine. And specifically, I've been talking about harmony. Harmony is beautiful. Um, you hear harmonic sounds coming out of our worship band, um, but the, uh, a barbershop quartet displays harmony well, or so I have told, and I'm getting some shaking heads, so I know I'm in good territory so far. All right, so I love going to uh, Magic Kingdom when the Dapper Dans are on Main Street USA, and they are singing in harmony. Now, a barbershop quartet is a four-part harmony where there are four individuals that are singing differently from one another, and they're all doing it beautifully, so beautifully that it blends together. In other words, out of their diversity blends this beautiful fullness of voice. The diversity only adds to the artistry. Now, there are two similar phrases to harmony. The first one is unison, um, or as I would define it, it would be, uh, it is unity without diversity, where everyone is singing the, on the exact same note or the exact same pitch, whichever one of those is correct. Hopefully one of them is correct. But it's when you're kind of all singing the exact same way. So you'd be singing in unison. So there is definitely unity. They're all going in the same direction, but there's not a great deal of diversity because they're all singing the exact same way. And then there is a concept of dissonance. Now, dissonance is a long word, but uh, I could sum it up to being diversity without unity. It's typically the unsettling result of musical notes that do not blend together. So you have harmony, which is unity with diversity, unison, that is unity without diversity, and dissonance, which is diversity without unity. Is it fair to say that our world would be defined by a culture of dissonance, where there is an unsettledness, where there is definitely a diversity of voices and opinions on every single topic imaginable, but they're not blending well. It's like every voice on the soundboard is simply being mic'd up and hyped up and everyone's trying to be louder and louder instead of trying to figure out how do we create unity in the midst of our diverse opinions and views. And within the church, unfortunately, so often we can be the same way where we have distrust in those in who we might disagree with in some way or another, where there is frustration that the other side never seems to listen to me. But how often do I ever take the time to listen to those on the other side? Have you ever experienced, have you, so when you think about your experience with the church, would you define it as a place made up of sweet harmony as Christians demonstrate love for one another? Or would you define it as sometimes having those unsettling tones of dissonance as your experience? Now, this is one of those messages that you might be tempted to go, oh man, this is good. This is helpful. I know somebody who needs to hear this one. You know, you know those kind of messages I'm talking about? But tonight, my hope is that for each and every one of us, that is, as we enter into the word of God tonight, that that person that you believe needs to hear this message is you me, us, that we wouldn't go beyond ourselves because all of us can easily be a part of a lack of harmony of this dissonance. 
So without going any further into that, let's go ahead and jump into our first one another, our one another for this week as we ponder what is our right response to a culture of dissonance. So we're in Romans 12, verse 16. So here's what it says. Live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. That's our call, that we would live in harmony with one another. Now, in the church in Rome, where Paul is writing this, there is no shortage of opportunity to disagree. This church is made up of both Jews and Gentiles, people that come from very different ethnic origins, from very different political origins, very different religious origins and contexts, and they've all filtered into this church. And they are in the middle of a culture that the persecution is just beginning to ramp up. If you ever want to hear more context on that, we went through the the book of Romans um, a few years ago and you can listen to that for greater context and to the realities in which they were living. But in the middle of that, in the middle of this world where division outside of the world and persecution collapsing in was only exacerbated by the fact that within the body, there was disunity. There was dissonance that was happening within the body. They were struggling on, what does it mean to actually live in holiness? Is my life supposed to actually change in light of the gospel? What does it look like for me to live as a faithful witness in this world? The same questions that we wrestle with in our day and age. Yet Paul calls his church to have harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another. See, this is the beautiful sound of unity amongst diversity. Harmony. And this is meant to describe the life of the local church. So what does it look like to live in harmony practically? Well, let's go back up just a little bit to verse nine. And what Paul's going to get at is he's going to get at that it starts with the heart. Let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. Allie and I have been married um, for a little over four years now. And we have, uh, and we have been learning in this parenting journey over, um, over the last year and some change now of what does it look like to raise kids well? And we're, we're messing it up and trying to repair things as we go along. But one of the things we got that was, that was a super helpful tip from um, an adoption resource that we look at is um, this idea of don't raise your kids to be nice, but, but lead them into the space that they would live in kindness. Now, the difference between niceness and kindness from the surface level might not seem very different, but the concept is that nice is like surface level um, pleasant actions, that we are doing the right things, that we're kind of putting on the right smile and then like being, and when you say, say hi to them, they say hi, you know, like that thing, right? Like, and that's not bad, that's good. And we teach Ash to do the same somehow. And kindness though is a heart posture of genuine care. That we would have that our desire to whatever extent we are able to disciple and raise up our kids, that they would have genuine kindness and care. Let your love be genuine. How often do you act nice to that person that you just that just frustrates you to all get out just to follow up as soon as they walk away with an eye roll? You'll talk to them and you'll go, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But as soon as they walk away, you go to somebody else and you go, Can you believe that's what they said? Let your love be genuine. See, Paul's desire to let their love be genuine means that the core of your affection needs to be stirred to demonstrate love for God and love for people. So live 
in harmony with one another. This is the heart of harmony, genuine love. If you don't have genuine love for one another, then nothing else can come from that. Genuine unity cannot be actually seen. Only surface level unity could ever be achieved. Now, Paul continues in verse nine. Let's read the entire thing of verse nine. Let your love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So to have genuine love for others does not mean that you are to affirm every thought, action, belief that, that you personally think or feel or that others do or that is acceptable in our cultural narrative. It doesn't mean that. We're still called to abhor what is evil or broken and to love and to cherish and to hold fast to what is good. See, this completely goes against the, the way that our world works, where in our culture, there's no longer an allowance for disagreement on either side of the conversation. So easily, if you disagree with me, then you're like the worst villain since Cruella de Vil, even though apparently she doesn't hate Dalmatians anymore. But the reality is that the scriptures have never fully affirmed any culture ever, ever. There's not a single culture that has ever been completely in alignment with the scriptures, ever. Look at the people of God, the Israelites. Look at what happens there. There is so much that God constantly has to rebuke and challenge them on, reminding them to abhor what is evil, to hold fast to what is good. And they always get it wrong. Why? Because humans are always at play. And the problem is we have this whole brokenness thing that's living within us that we have to reconcile and deal with. The reality is that the scriptures have never fully affirmed any, any culture. And where the origins of this comes from in the very beginning of the scriptures. We humans express our desire to find good and bad on our own terms in, in Genesis 1 through 3. And that still happens in each and every one of our hearts. Like, sure, we want to know what God ha might have to say about a given subject up until the point that it challenges what we want. And then if it's between me, my desires and God's desires, I'm going to prioritize mine. But then things are meant to change. We are called to live in genuine love while not losing God's desire, right desire to define good and bad on his terms, not on our terms terms. So we are called to abhor what is broken and to hold fast to what is good. We are not called to have harmony around a different gospel. This is, uh, there is a, uh, an early church, uh, an early church father. His name was Augustine. He came from Africa and Augustine once, um, is recorded to have said it this way. Uh, he said in, in essentials, unity and non-essentials charity, but in all things, or in all things, Flip that one. And essentials, it's kind of important to get this quote right. And essentials, unity. And non-essentials, liberty. But in all things, charity. That love would be the defining marker for everyone, period. But that in the, that in the essential things, that we'd hold those things fast, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't capitulate to a different gospel, that the baseline of our song would be the beauty of who Jesus is and what the, the scriptures say authoritatively. So we are called to live in harmony with one another, but not forsake what is good in the process. Now in verse 10, Paul continues, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. 
So we begin this beautiful song that we begin to sing together as a community as we outdo one another in showing honor. Now to honor someone, you probably know what it means to honor someone. You know what it feels like when somebody has honored you well. To honor someone is to highly, to honor something is to highly value it or that person. It's not empty flattery. It's about seeing the value and the dignity of someone else and what they bring to the table. And we put that on display and we make that known. We elevate that. We want to make much of them and be so excited for what they are bringing to the table. But what I want you to see in this passage is look at like the competitive language that Paul's using here. Outdo one another in showing honor. So he's not just saying, just show honor to people. He's saying, outdo one another. If I were to invite two of you onto the stage, which I'm not going to, to have an ice cream eating contest. Uh, Okay, we already got volunteers, cool. Uh, But if we were to invite two of you on the stage for an ice cream eating contest, the odds are, and I said, outdo one another in eating ice cream. You'd probably end up eating, if both of you were competitive, you would end up eating more ice cream than you would have if you were, say, just sitting on your couch by yourself eating ice cream. Why? Because there's a competitive nature to that. That out of that friction, out of that tension, there is actually a drive to do more. And you can sense the almost competitive language that he's using to outdo one another. And this is the way we're meant to do life together, that we would outdo one another in honor. It's a never-ending competition. It's the building up of others. Instead of looking to build ourselves up, it's pushing others up. And what's crazy though, is if we were all looking to outdo one another in honor, you know what would happen? We would all be raised up together as a community. The most practical version of that in my life has been within my relationship with Allie. That for Allie and I, when we are focused on ourselves. And what we want out of things, and I'm not feeling very loved right now, and I am looking to Allie, or she is looking to me to fill her needs, what ends up happening is we begin to come at each other with a completely self-interested mindset, a completely selfish mindset, what, that neither of us can actually fulfill for one another. But what's been so cool is in the moments when we get a little bit of clarity, we begin to focus on how can I love Allie well? Where she is focused on how do I love or honor Dandy well? What, how can I sacrificially love her well? What ends up happening is we are both building one, uh, one another up and displaying genuine love for one another. Outdo one another in honor. Now, verses 11 through 13, Paul continues, and he's gonna, what he's gonna do here, he's gonna like kind of fire off a list of a bunch of really cool things that would be awesome if we were empowered to do. So he says, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in prayer, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. So I love this list. This list is, has so many unifying goals in it that as they continue to endure suffering and persecution, the difficulties of their cultural moment, that they would have their minds fixed on serving Jesus. They wouldn't be slothful. They would be urgent in their, their desire to abide in Jesus and to serve him faithfully and well, that they would live out of that obedience. See, this is the harmonic song of the church when it is being done in the context of community. But part of this includes living in generosity to, within the context of community and living in hospitality. 
Something Allie recently learned um, and then she taught me was about hospitality, is that hospitality um, is not just about opening up your home or your life to those who are easy for you to get along with. Hospitality, genuine hospitality is opening up your life to those who on the surface level, it wouldn't make a lot of sense on why you would be together, maybe. But because of Jesus, the paradigm changed. You now have more in common through Christ than you could ever have any other way. This is harmony. Unity amongst diversity. This is a song of harmony. Unity with those who are different. Love for those who have different interests, life experiences, opinions than you. So live in harmony with one another. Now verses 14 and 15, Paul continues. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Again, this is a church in suffering. They are experiencing high levels of persecution is beginning to just start in this church. The pain is here in Rome. And do you know what Paul's first encouragement is? He, he riffs on Jesus. He just requotes. Jesus, bless those who persecute you. Could you imagine how difficult that would be? Could you imagine what it would mean, what that would look like, that when somebody is taking away your family members to bless them, when somebody is maybe taking you to the Roman Colosseum to die from lions, that, like, that you would be able to offer a blessing to them, that as your house is being demolished, that your church gathering is being disbanded, you would bless them. Yet that's what Paul's calling them to. Now, here's where it gets kind of interesting, right? Imagine that, imagine that we are the church in Rome and the persecution is just starting and maybe one or a few of us are starting to sense it in, the business, in our businesses. We run some shops or whatever and our businesses, because of our allegiance to Jesus, are now being closed, are now being taken away from us. But not all of us. Now, how do we do that? What does that mean? Should we go to that person and go, you know, just trust in the Lord. It's all going to work out just fine. What do we do? Or let's flip it a little bit, right? Imagine that you're the one who is having a rough go at it right now. And, and, but then another person, it's going a little bit easier for them. What do you do to interact with them? Well, Paul says, again, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. See, what happens when we rejoice with those who are rejoicing and weeping with those who are weeping is we have the opportunity to enter into their world, into their context. We have the opportunity to not just try to cheer up the suffering or the grieving or the, the hurting. We have the opportunity to cry with them, to be with them, to offer more than just a platitude or a fix to their problem but presence. And when somebody is rejoicing, something awesome has happened in their life and your life is either neutral or it's pretty crummy right now, you also have the opportunity to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. You don't have to just go, well, well, it's good that good things are happening to you, but like if you knew what's going on in my life, you'd feel terrible. No, it's that wherever you are, you have the opportunity to enter in through empathy to the other. See, this is empathy. Empathy. Now, for me personally, empathy 
can be often difficult because I personally am very focused on action. So when something tragic happens in my life or in the life of others, I typically want to go in and fix it. That's my first that's my first reaction is, all right, what can we do? What do we do? What do we got to do? How do we make this right? What, where do we go? But to mourn and to grieve and to weep with those who are weeping, to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. Empathy is a part of what it means to live in harmony with one another, that we would journey into the other, into other people's context, that we understand one another, that we don't rush to fixing, that we don't rush to correcting, that we, that we rejoice in the highs and we sit down and cry in the lows with one another as a community, as a family. That's what we're called into. And from that context, Paul moves into verse 16, which we visited earlier, where he says, live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now we are at the harmony piece of the puzzle, and it's built on the back of this idea of rejoicing and weeping with those who are experiencing that. And when we are experiencing even a diversity of circumstances within our community, we have the opportunity to join into harmony with one another. Because remember, harmony is unity blended with diversity. And this is why we need to reject any concept of unison or uniformity. As my friend Billy uh, said earlier this week um, when we were talking about this concept, is he said what comes to his mind when he thinks of uniformity or unison is this idea of everyone marching in a straight line, that everyone's doing it exactly the same way in every way. Now, that might look orderly and it might even be good and helpful in the most important things and the essentials. But the reality is that doesn't bring the fullness of what can be present in the family of God. Now, we also need to reject dissonance, which is diversity without unity, which is when we begin to march against one another, that we're coming to the battlefield together, but instead of marching in a straight line, we're marching completely opposed to one another and we're coming for a battle against each other. Dissonance is not what we are called into. So we have to reject that too. Instead, we are called to live in harmony, unity with diversity. We are called to live in harmony with one another, which is the family of God, sisters and brothers marching alongside one another against our true enemy, the one who wants to kill, steal, and destroy, the Satan, the twisted one, the broken one, the false one, the accuser. He is the enemy of the brethren, not one another, and not other human beings outside of the walls of the church either. We are called to be united. We are called to do life together. Now, there is something really interesting here. He's going to offer a parallel between two H words, harmony and haughty. And the interesting thing about those two words is in Greek, they are both the exact same phrase, except they have a, uh, they have a word that comes right before each of them that defines what the actual characteristic is. Both are connected to the concept of how you understand yourself in comparison to others. So here's what I mean by that. That fact that harmony is understanding others as valuable as self. So you see something beautiful within the diversity because all of us are elevated to this place where we go, man, I don't fully understand, I don't fu- but, but that's beautiful. Like I can see where you're coming from. We, I have understanding for you and with you. Haughtiness is understanding yourself as more valuable 
than others. See, to be haughty is to believe that you are better, that you are more right, that you are more worthy, that you are more valuable. But let me flip it and change it just a little bit because it still applies with the concept of haughtiness, that you feel more misunderstood, that you feel more isolated, that you feel more judged whenever you feel more anything. Others won't get me because blank. That is so easily us elevating ourselves over others. We aren't seeing that other people might have a shared experience with us that we could enter into together as a community. This connects to, and this idea, then um, Paul connects to a specific sin. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. So he's talking about rejecting something that in the book of James refers to as the sin of partiality. Now, the sin of partiality is any time when we, sh- when we show preference to either ourself or a specific group of people over others, or we specifically target one group to be lower than everyone else. It's when we are, sh- are showing partialness or partiality. And in James, just like in the book of Romans, he is connecting it to socioeconomic realities where he is saying, but associate with the lowly. And, and, and um, in the book of James, James writes and specifically states, if somebody is coming in and they are well-dressed versus not well-dressed, give no preference or deference from one to the other. Don't give partiality. Don't engage in the sin of partiality. But it extends beyond just this. Because the truth is to associate with the lowly is to associate with the heart of Jesus. Jesus says that I am gentle and lowly of heart. In Greek, what that means is at his very core, in his essence of who Jesus is, is he is gentle and lowly for sufferers and sinners. That's his heart. That's his desire. And if you are in Christ and the spirit of God is dwelling within you, then that is meant to be your core as well. That you would show no preference. You would show no partiality from one to another. That you would display love for one another. See, partiality is a result of brokenness. And it is played out in a number of ways, not just in this one unique way. It can be attached to things like ethnicity. That's what we refer to as racism. The sin of partiality can be attached, though, to poverty, intellect, degrees, interests, political leanings. Um, I uniquely feel this one because this is one that I personally can oftentimes be swayed into. But the idea of tribalism within Christianity, where there are people who think, act like me, and they have all the same theological concepts as me. So I put myself in this tribe on a pedestal over all others, that we must have received something that others are lacking. And we need to wholeheartedly reject that. That's not the point. The point is that we are pursuing truth. We're not forsaking truth, but that we would remember that we will get to heaven one day and be corrected as well. That none of us got the full picture ever. We are all in progress. The sin of partiality can be attached to personality types, gender, work, work locations, job roles. Anytime we are tempted to say that one person is better than another, we are engaging the sin of partiality. And partiality is a result of brokenness. And we need to ask that the heart of, that the heart of God would transform our hearts. And this ultimately connects to the last part of this verse. What does he say? 
Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Having the humility to know that others might have wisdom that you are lacking. So we can learn from one another. We can even learn from those we disagree with wholeheartedly. We can learn from one another. It's beautiful, but that takes humility. That takes the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Live in harmony with one another. And finding that that is true wisdom is the beautiful harmonic song of the church. Now, verse 17 and 18. Paul continues saying it this way, repay no one, no one evil for evil, but get thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Man, Paul is not really giving some outs on this one, right? Live peaceably with all. Now, does this guarantee a peaceful and quiet living in existence? No. As far as it is up to you, as far as you are a contributor to this, live at peace with all. And this doesn't just mean peace and quiet. What this means is that when you know that there is bitterness dwelling within you, that you would deal with it. You wouldn't let it to fester. You would go if, if, if it is appropriate for you to go to that person and go and say, hey, this is what's been going on with me. Then you do it. If it means you first and foremost go to, this, go to God and ask him to expose to you the spaces of brokenness in you, the log in your own eye, that he would deal handsomely with you. The idea that when someone has a problem with you and you've heard about it, that you would go to them. The hard thing about Jesus is he always puts the onus back on us. He's like, if somebody has a problem with you, you go to them. If you have a problem with someone else, you go to them. What is he expecting us to do? Deal with conflict well and wisely? I mean, like, yes, that's exactly what Jesus is calling us to, which is why in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. This is what it means to be a peacemaker over peacekeeper. Peacekeepers pretend that everything's fine and actually are a volcano waiting to erupt. Or they steamroll people to keep the peace. A peacemaker is the pe- is, are the type of people that say, you are my brother, you are my sister. So we are gonna handle this together and we will not give up until we handle it. We will figure this out. We will make peace together. As far as it's as up to you, live, at, live peaceably with all. Make peace, seek harmony, seek unity. Listen to the song of harmony playing. The last thing I want to mention is verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So again, he kind of bookends this passage talking about the difference between evil and good. Do not be overcome with evil. He's been unpacking what is evil, the opposite of all things good in this passage. Dissonance in the family of God is evil. Suspicion is broken. Gossip, double talk is broken. The sin of partiality is broken. Live in the goodness. Allow the goodness to overcome the evil. Now, I was also told that sometimes a songwriter or composer will allow dissonance to come into play so that when when harmony comes into the tune, the harmony is even more beautiful. 
our God is the composer of the cosmos, the songwriter of history. And in the middle of our chaotic song of dissonance of our world, he is writing a song of harmony through us, the life of the church, his bride being prepared for the ultimate song to be sung. He is writing a song of harmony through us that when the world sees the way that we love one another, that the gospel would be on display and they would be left stunned, wondering how do they join the choir? Imagine if that was our reality. We don't have to imagine because it is. That's what is meant to be our reality. But it has to start with each one of us constantly asking the spirit of God to examine our hearts. Are there areas in your life that you would need to confess that you have not been seeking harmony? Individuals who you have been holding bitterness against, groups of people that you are tempted to refuse or write off within the family of God. See the heart of Jesus, gentle and lowly, unifying and harmonious, and ask the spirit to search your heart, to expose where you've been overcome by brokenness, and instead watch as he overcomes that evil, that brokenness with the goodness of the cross. Imagine if this was our story as a community, that we would sing a harmonious song, that we'd realize that we come from very different places. We have different backgrounds, different experiences. We might work in different roles and we might sing in very different tones. But for those of us in the family of God, we stand united together by the baseline of our faith in Jesus Christ and in him alone and our submission to the word of God. And we would allow his song to guide our song. I think that's something so beautiful, something so incredible, something so worthwhile. Now I'm going to ask the band to come on up. And as they do, I just want to offer that simple challenge that you would take time. Maybe it's here tonight. Maybe it's after you, um, you go to Alehouse with a friend and go and talk this over. Maybe this is on your own a little bit later as you are just journaling in the days ahead. But don't miss this opportunity. Ask the spirit of God to reveal in you, where am I not pursuing this kind of radical unity, this beautiful harmony? Talk it over. Enter into community in this way that we would live in harmony with one another. So if that is you, I'm asked that you would join with me in prayer. Father, I thank you for your incredible love for us, your kids, your community. God, I don't know what to do. I don't know um, what I need to know right now, but I am imagining that there are ways and spaces within me that I need to be challenged. I need to be transformed. I need to change. So Lord, I pray that you would, by the power of your spirit, reveal something in me and reveal something in each and every one of us that we as a community would pursue unity. That for those of us in this room who maybe we're just visiting, we're um, family from out of town. Lord, I just pray that you would give all of us who are a part of your family, this heart to pursue harmony, beautiful harmony, not capitulating on what is true, not giving in in those ways. We're pursuing harmony, liberty, and the non-essentials. 
for all those who are here or who may not know Jesus, I pray that they would experience your life, death, and resurrection as this community displays the gospel as we pursue harmony. I pray that you would be already right now challenging their heart with the realization that we are not perfect. That we are people who just want to know our creator more intimately and have realized and discovered that apart from Jesus, we don't have a way to do that. So Father, I pray that you would grow us and challenge us, that you would be working in us and through us. We need you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.